Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me as always, celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm, I'm so excited. This is, this, is what, this is where it's all been going. We're here in the final two episodes. This is the penultimate episode. I love that word. <laughs> And we'll keep using that word because there are always the yeah. penultimate episodes <laughs> as we get through each one of these seasons of different shows. <laughs> but I, I suggested, I told you, I think in the last episode, that these final two episodes are going to feel like one two-hour finale. And it's going to be hard to sort of uh, break them apart in your mind. You're going to want to watch them back to back. And uh, But here we are. We, we forced ourselves. Reluctantly agreed. Okay. Yeah. Let me just say that. We reluctantly agreed because after I watched... The first episode and how it ended, I was like, I hate you, Adam. And I hate <laughs> this rule that we have to cover these episode by episode. Because I was like, I'm ready to go through the, the yeah. I'm ready to go to the next episode. And you know, if you don't know listeners, I mean there is definitely a few days break between each episode that we record. So I had to wait. And <laughs> I'm I'm ready to say this episode was awesome. We'll see you later and get on to the finale because it's just <laughs> oh well, we even talked about, should we just watch both and do one kind of mega episode covering both? But I think we agreed that we want to give each episode yes. its time and just be consistent. So Yeah, I think, you were the voice of reason there, and I appreciate yeah. that. I need the voice of reason. Otherwise, this show would be run amok by myself, <laughs> and uh, I don't know that we would um, have any kind of consistency, so... For you, well, for me, for our listeners, they would be like, what are they covering this week? Oh, they're covering episodes like three through seven. Okay, yeah. I guess because they want to do that. And while it is our show, we can do what we want. We definitely want to create some kind of rules. Just like time travel has rules in TV shows, we're creating our own rules. And the rules are do not cover more than one episode at a time in a series. If you're covering episode by episode. Now, if we covered an entire season at once, then all bets are off. But we're not doing that for this. For this particular series and season, we are giving each episode an individual podcast episode that allows us to really focus on what makes that episode tick. And it, it also allows us to talk about, you know, who directed that episode, who guest starred in that episode. And I think that's important to really focus on each each episode as its own work of filmmaking. Yeah, for sure. It's um it's definitely an advantage to be able to microscopically look at these episodes really of any, any TV series, because there's value to talk about whole seasons in the world of binge watching that we live in. But as we've talked about before, online, offline, every line, <laughs> the value of being able to really dissect an episode, especially in a series like this, it's just a lot of fun. I think for me, to be honest, I enjoy the sacrifice of not watching an episode ahead for the sake of having a good conversation about the episode that we're covering. So right. kudos to you for being my Jiminy Cricket. I'm glad you're on the show. I'm going to keep you. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And this is Chapter 7, The Bathtub, directed by the Duffer Brothers, who have directed the vast majority 
of this first season, except for that two episode arc, if you will, that Sean Levy directed. I think it was the third and fourth episode. I think, yeah, you're right. The rest uh, are all directed by the show creators, the Duffers, which I think is great because this is really, this is their idea, their vision, and they've been allowed to, to have that control over it. Netflix really did give them uh, with some assistance, obviously, they did give them a lot of creative control to create and tell the story the way they wanted to. So before we get into the episode, I wanted to ask something that you sort of pinged my head <laughs> that I was thinking about sure. earlier. I've gone to several movies in the past week, and I've been paying attention to you know screenplay, writing credits, and how the credits are displayed especially when you have two people and it's the ampersand versus the and, and it's just been really fun to go, Oh, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, I guess they didn't really want to get along. Every time I see that now, I think, Oh, these guys didn't really want to have any kind of collaborative. Or it could have been two phases of development uh, where there might've been one writer that did a draft three years ago, the film kind of fell into what they sometimes refer to as production hell, where it doesn't know where it's going and no one knows what's happening. And then it gets revived and they bring in a new writer and they never actually sat down and collaborated with the first writer, but they both technically get a credit. So that's when you get the and spelled out because they worked independently of one another on two different drafts. But ultimately, both writers did contribute something towards the the end product that you're seeing on screen. Yeah. And so in line with that, six of the eight episodes, I'm assuming the season finale is going to be directed by the Duffer Brothers as well. But the episodes that were directed by them, they're credited as the Duffer Brothers. Right. Is that an official title or is that just the way that they're describing? Yep. These are the brothers with the last name Duffer. Like these are the two guys, just like the Wachowskis, Wachowskis. I think the credit for the Matrix was the Wachowskis or the Wachowskis. I can't remember how you pronounce their last name, but is, is that an official title? Like do you, are they credited on paper as the Duffer brothers as like an official, like technical name, or is that just kind of how they're described? I think that's a common thing that the, I mean, the, the Coen brothers have done this too, but at other points in times, they'll break out their credits. I think what happens is when you have two people like that, who are brothers who basically are sharing in all the responsibilities, that's a good way to kind of tell the public that they are equal in all respects in regards to their contributions. Whereas there can be situations where you can assign either or of two siblings or for a while, the Coens would do this. It was, they would have Joel Cohen take the directing credit and Ethan Cohen would get the producing credit and they would both share the writing credit. But really that was just a way to break out the credits. They really were in fact collaborating in every, every respect. Right. Okay. So I think that's the case here. I think these two, brothers the duffers are in fact equal in their creative contributions okay yeah does that make sense or yeah it does no it absolutely does and it's again it's always fun to to look at credits as i'm gaining this knowledge from our conversations of just kind of how things are depicted in the credits like even recently i was at a movie theater today and i stayed for the credits not because i expected there to be an in credit scene for this particular one Right. But I was looking at, okay, how are, how is the director being addressed? How are the writers being addressed? And I saw the and spelled out and I'm like, okay, so maybe there was a draft or, and then you had the final, maybe you have, this is based off of, you know, if a movie's based off of a book series, then you have 
someone who's a consulting writer, that kind of thing. And it's just, it yeah. fascinates me the number, not only the number of people that work on a film, but, or, or a project like this, but also just the amount of titles that go into it. Like there are just yeah. tons and tons and tons of people and the bigger budget project that you have, whether it's a television show or a movie, it just fascinates me. And I think that when it comes to credits, I've learned to appreciate the fact that when a person's name is on there, it's really important to them. Even if they're not top billed as the star or the writer or the person that does the, you know, the DP, but even down to the gaffers, the best boy, the, mm -hmm. you know, craft services, all those things really matter. And so as we're walking through this season and I'm getting more knowledgeable about these things, it's been educational to be able to kind of go, okay, so is that, the Duffer brothers, or are they called the Duffers? Is that, is it kind yeah. of like the, the Duggers? Are they trying to separate themselves? They call themselves the Duffer brothers. And it's, it's just, it fascinates me. Yeah. And it's interesting too, to think about two brothers getting along well enough that they could actually collaborate so seamlessly with one another without fighting. And maybe there is fighting that we don't see, right? There could easily be, but I, I don't know if I could direct a movie with my brother. We, I mean, I love him. We get along along great, but I don't. We're very different people. So I don't know if we would see eye to eye with everything. So I, I think there has to be a very specific type of relationship, sibling relationship, for that to work as well as it does. There are a couple other. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. There are a couple other brothers that have worked together, and they refer to themselves as the so and so brothers. So it's it's not a brand new thing. I mean, there are situations like that. And like you mentioned with the and spelled out between two writers, that's obviously different than when you see, say in the opening credits of the show, when you see and Matthew Modine, that's a whole different thing. That's a status symbol, if you will, that gets negotiated by agents because he of course has been acting for now almost 40 years. And so it's sort of a way to show, Oh, we have an important, but you know, supporting role that we've hired somebody who has some gravitas, right? Some respect that he's worked with Stanley Kubrick and other great directors. So here you have mostly new name kid actors and a couple Hollywood staples like Winona Ryder and David Harbour who are at the front of the credits. And then you have at the end that little and. And sometimes they'll go even further and they'll have who they're playing written underneath it. Like it might say and Matthew Modine as Dr. Martin Brenner or something like that. And that adds even more weight to the role because it means that that role that they're playing is a role that's recognizable or important that you want to draw attention to it. Uh, so yeah, there's all this stuff that goes on. It's, it's agents negotiating these things, the placement, how long the name appears, how big their name appears on the screen or on posters, all of it. It's all stuff that's figured out ahead of time. Yeah. It's wow. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be in movies. This is yeah, uh, too much. <laughs> just, I'll be the best boy. I'm good with that. Yeah. That's a, you know, it's. It just sounds good. You're the best boy. I am the best boy. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I would kill at craft services. I think I've mentioned that before, but I think I would kill at craft services. Yeah. One yeah. more thing. I don't want to, I don't yeah. want this to turn into a technical conversation, although we could probably go forever on that, but that's not why people have tuned in. The idea of the, and is that synonymous with the word with. So when you have a TV show or something like with Matthew Modine as yeah, so that, the same kind of thing, it's very, it's exactly the same thing. Although with is usually a little less prominent. So if you have two important actors or two, established actors who are making important supporting roles usually the one that gets the and is the sort of more coveted 
one and the with which comes before it it's still significant but it might be a slightly smaller role and so they get the with beforehand and you'll see some movies where there are so many important notable actors in small parts there might be two or three credits where it says with so-and-so with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So So they've all apparently negotiated or had their agents negotiate to get them those credits so that their names appear more prominent towards the end of the billing sequence. Okay. So I'll make sure for our marking materials that I say starring AOS, starring Patrick Hicks with Adam Rakoff and not, and Adam Rakoff, because I don't want to give you top billing, right? That's fine. (laughs) Or we can do, we can do what first started with, um, with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where you had Paul Newman and Robert Redford, who were very equal in their sort of prominence at the time, and they couldn't decide. They couldn't figure out who would get first billing, so they developed something called staggered. I think it's called staggered but equal, where you would have one of them be higher but on the left, one of them be lower but on the right. So one would come first but be lower, and the other would come second but be higher on the poster and, and on the marketing material. So look at anytime you see a poster, look at those things because they're actually important decisions that have been made to determine where those those credits are are placed. This is all just too much ego. This is just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot, man. That's just that's just crazy. Sorry for this uh, this weird tangent that we went into, but well, we're going to dig into episode seven now. Yeah. <laughs> Episode seven starts now. <laughs> let's talk about credits. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right. Let's start with the opening as we always do. We're at Mike's house. I think it's uh, absolutely sweet how he's taking care of Elle, wiping the blood off of her nose. He does something really cool. He validates that she is still pretty without the wig. I mean, there's some insecurity there. Yeah. And that really kind of is reinforced backwards a little bit when she is looking at herself in the reflection of the lake. Right. Puts the wig on and then takes it off and then screams, you know, the banshee kind of thing. I thought that if we didn't have that scene or that moment, I think that this moment right here wouldn't be nearly as impactful. So I was glad that we got that. It didn't seem significant at the time, but I think it created significance in this moment where he, uh, he does that validation. And also when Elle is exploring Mike's house and goes into Nancy's room and sees pictures of Nancy and her friends and, you know, they, they've got long hair and wear beautiful, you know, clothing. That I think might be her first instance perhaps of seeing what a sort of a typical teenage girl might look like in 1983. And so that might make her self-conscious, right? That, oh, I'm, is this how I'm supposed to look, right? Is this, is this what pretty is? And so she's maybe comparing herself to Mike's older sister and wondering, am I good enough, right? So here we have Mike basically validating that she's absolutely perfect just the way she is and that she doesn't need to be anything else or anything like his older sister. Yeah, and I think that after you know that kind of background, I'm glad you brought that up, it leads to this sweet, awkward moment <laughs> It's very slow, almost kiss. <laughs> and yeah. I almost wasn't really expecting this. I mean, I knew that he was fond of her, but I didn't think he saw her in that way. 
I'm trying to think of when I was 12, was I into, into girls? But anyway, it just, it created this great kind of awkward moment where they almost kiss. They kind of move in, but they don't, then they, they get interrupted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that interruption comes in the form of my man, Dustin, who's <laughs> like, you got to come out here. And then this is where the episode just takes off. Like, I believe that first three minutes with Mike and Elle is the only quiet moment we get in this episode. At least it felt that way. Yeah. Because then we get like screaming over the walkie talkie. Lucas is being chased by what Dustin thinks are mad hens at first, which I thought was great. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the walkies are staticky and he's he's on his bike riding quickly. So th- these are not high tech walkie talkies, I don't think. They're just, they, they barely do the job. But yeah, they the point is, is made that something's coming. <laughs> bad men or mad hen, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they finally... <laughs> They finally understand, and I think they look out the window and see one van, one van with with a with the guy that we saw in the previous mm-hmm. episode, who kind of waves uh, to them. I think we see him off in right. the distance. Yeah. Uh, so from there, you see Mike coming out of the basement. His mom is talking on the phone to I don't know who it is, but it's somebody with regard to Nancy and potentially hanging out with. Um, with steve yeah i'm wondering if it's steve's mom that's what i was wondering if maybe they're sort of discussing what this relationship might be that they two because remember in the last episode she saw that someone had been sleeping in nancy's room and there's was that whole conversation earlier in the series in the season about is steve your boyfriend now so maybe the moms are talking right maybe they're saying so what's going on are our kids you know, are they uh, are they seeing each other? What's what have you seen? What have you noticed? That's that's <laughs> that's the way I took it. So. Yeah, I think this episode really highlights how behind the curve parents are in yeah. this town with everything. And, and as we go through our recap, we will highlight those things. I will definitely highlight those things. But you see, Mike telling his mom, "You know, I need to talk to you. Get off the phone." And she's like, "What are you doing?" And I love how he is so matter of fact. He's like, "We got to get out of here." If anybody asks, I'm out of the country. And it's like, <laughs> that's what a 12-year-old would say. Like, what else are you going to say? And she just has no clue. She's like, what's going on here? This yeah. uh, You guys playing a game? And then we see the evil power and electric vans showing up. Like a caravan of them. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like that Mike asks his mom, did you have somebody coming over to do some service to the house? I thought that was a really great yeah. question to ask right because there is that one van that's just been parked out front sitting there like why if they're not doing any work on anything what are they doing there but like you said then we see this whole caravan of like, what maybe five or six more of these vans which seems unlikely that you would need for any job that had gone down any kind of damage that might have occurred from a storm or anything so it, it's not at all suspicious it's a <laughs> It's a little overkill, but it's, yeah. it's just, yeah, a little little out of the ordinary. And of course, when they get out there, they see Brenner and company coming out. And I love this shot, Adam, where you see this almost like push in to L looking away from the camera. And then you see this push in with Brenner looking at her. And I thought to myself, what is he thinking? Like, it's, no. he wasn't smiling. He wasn't, he didn't look mad. He just... I think this is something I'm liking about Matthew Modine's performance is that he is so stoic in this series. 
and watching him not emote at all, like even in those quiet moments with her, I thought, man, this is, this is making him look incredibly creepy and smart and just all these things. And I'm like, when is he going to get mad? When is he going to, when is his, when are his powers going to like come out where he can like throw things in the air and, and make people's bladder squeeze tight or whatever. I'm just, (laughs) I'm waiting for his superpower to come out at some point. I mean, I think his power is that he's so in control of his emotions. He's like the opposite of Eleven. He's very true. He doesn't allow anything to phase him. He just, and maybe that's the sort of scientist in him, right? He's just very good at seeing like, like Mr. Spock, you know, it's all logic, right? What, here's my problem in front of me. How am I going to figure it out? We do get those occasional little smirks or, or smiles where you're like, oh, wow. He like, he's saying so much with just that little expression right now like you can almost see what he's thinking or feeling yeah beyond you know his normal stoic self yes it's pretty fascinating so they take off and then he gets in his caravan of vans yeah. <laughs> and uh i noticed that dustin has a headset so i guess it's connected to the walkie which i thought is great you know he's of course it's going to be dustin with the headset and he's like keeping in touch with lucas he's like he's coming he's down here whatever you know keeping kind of like a co-pilot, you know, saying, yeah. you got a MIG on your tail, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, like X-Wing pilots in Star Wars. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this really felt like, are we making the Kessel Run? Is this uh, yeah. is this hot? <laughs> are we going to take down some ADATs in the yeah. form of power and electric vans? Which, by the way, let me just say this. Those are not really menacing. You know, when I see like three or four of them coming down the street, I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to take over. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my cable's out. And so is my neighbor. And so is his neighbor. And so is this person's neighbor. I mean, this doesn't seem out of the ordinary to a lot of neighbors, I don't think. Well, and that's probably the point, wouldn't you say? I mean, if, if they're trying to discreetly put an end to the situation of this this patient that broke out of their facility, you would you, they probably chose the one thing that most people would just look the other way and not even think anything of like, Oh, well, yeah, we've been having a lot of electrical storms over the past couple of weeks, a lot of power outages. So yeah, there's power trucks all over the place doing work. And so I think that was honestly, the intention was to be as inconspicuous as possible. I think it is too. And I think it's brilliant in that regard. However, when you make it like a chase sequence, oh, yeah. it comes across as a not hokey, but it's like, mm, yeah, I don't really buy that. That right. What makes it cool, though, is when Elle throws down her power and that van just goes flying into the air. And that's the I think that's the end of our our cold open. And here's the Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah. Title sequence. So, I mean, that's clearly, yeah, that's the most I think that we've witnessed thus far, the most that she's done in terms of probably weight and scale and and distance that she's moved an object with her mind, which is pretty incredible. And I don't know about you, but this definitely felt like a little bit of a, a callback to the bike chase in E.T. Yeah. When the kids are trying to escape the government officials in a very similar fashion. And ultimately they get, you know, kind of trapped in that movie as well. And that's when E.T. has to use his mind powers to lift the bikes up into the air and out of harm's way. And in a very similar fashion, Elle does the same thing. She uses her powers to to get them out of the situation that they're in. And I love that shot also of Brenner after that happens. It's this kind of almost proud, yeah. very simple expression, but it's almost like a little bit of pride uh, in his little 11. Like, wow, 
she just moved through a van over her head and uh, and and i and maybe it's because again as a scientist he's probably thinking wow she's really even out of the lab she's continuing to control and grow her abilities further mm-hmm. than what than she had with inside the hawkins lab so i think he sees her as as more than just a lab rat you know he sees her right. as something that he has sort of nurtured and wants to see you know again they, none of them had guns pulled none of them had any they weren't trying to hurt these kids they were just trying to apprehend them and that's something that just like an et they're in the original theatrical cut they all had guns in the police vehicles and government vehicles which of course they famously removed and replaced with walkie-talkies in the 2002 theatrical re-release i don't know if you remember that but i don't remember that there was such a uproar over that because uh spielberg decided that he didn't want all these government agents essentially pointing guns at the kids during that bike chase scene so he removed digitally the guns and gave them all walkie-talkies come on spielberg come on man yeah and he's He's since admitted that that was a really dumb thing. He should never have messed with it. And that has since been scrubbed from subsequent home media releases. But yeah, it's expunged from the minds of of people. (laughs) Just whatever. (laughs) Well, as the, uh, as the scene finishes out, we get to the junkyard where I guess it's their hideout. And this is where I think one of my favorite moments of the episode takes place we have this reconciliation between Lucas and Elle. After he says, I'm sorry, she says, friends, don't lie. I'm sorry, too. I love that. I love that she understands, that she sees what she's done and how it's affected him. And then the handshake to Mike. I'd forgotten that they didn't shake because yeah. the, the negotiation fell through right. and they went on their merry way the last episode. And so the handshake seals it. And then I think that's when we get to the the opening tiles. I think I was mistaken. I think that's when the opening. Yeah, I think you're right. That's that, that a lot. It it doesn't take long for all that to happen, but it's a lot of stuff (laughs) going on here in the, in the, uh, in that cold open. Yeah. So the, the police station is where we end up after the titles roll. Um, I just want to mention real quick uh, in this scene that uh, Joyce's car is a quote unquote classic. And I say classic (laughs) in the loosest sense. I think it's a gremlin, uh, but I, I can't really tell, but, I didn't, yeah, I didn't catch what it was. I'm seeing more of it and I'm, I'm starting to pay attention to some of the, <laughs> the cars that are rolling around uh, the town here. And then we cut back to the Wheeler house and, uh, you know, <laughs> clueless dad is on full display this episode. <laughs> he answers the door because <laughs> well, yeah, why would you do that? You know, it's like, <laughs> and they're and yeah, the bell, the doorbell's ringing, ringing, and he's like, Jiminy Christmas. Like, he says that under his breath. I'm like, who says Jiminy Christmas? <laughs> he's such a... It is Christmas season, right? So I guess it's Yeah, it is, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then they're getting they're getting questioned by, you know, psycho, you know, multi-role lady here who's now, <laughs> I guess, I don't know what, who she's representing now. I guess it's the Department of Energy or maybe it's the, go- the government. In, in, you know, yeah, they quotes. just flash badges, I realized. They don't really say who they represent. <laughs> From a toy store, right? probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't give them their names. They don't, uh, that I, I recall, they don't tell them what agency, what three-letter agency they work for. Yeah. And the dialogue here is so perfect because, again, it highlights some of the just naivety of these adult parents. This is, I think, something that we find in a lot of cartoon shows. We, we have the dad who's a real goof 
Yeah. Uh, especially when you like the Simpsons is a great example where, where Homer is just a kind of a, a funny, you know, goofy guy. It's because of that, that I can appreciate shows like King of the Hill where Hank Hill is not, he's very much a, a down to earth character. And that's what, what appeals to me about a cartoon show like that. There's nothing wrong with cartoons or shows that depict a parent as kind of a goober, especially when it's driven by kids. I think it's appropriate here. It's on full display. And I think it's perfectly appropriate. It, it kind of creates a little bit of levity. You have lines from the dad that says, if he had a girl sleeping in this house, we'd know it. And he goes, yeah. wouldn't we <laughs> like, you're just, you're not in touch with your, with your son or your daughter at this point. And then uh, when they mention L and they describe her, he goes, Oh God, is she Russian? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. We're definitely in the cold war period right here where anything bad that's going on is Russian. I mean, let's right. just, that's you know, the default position. It's Russian. So yeah, there we yeah. go. And he even he he asks too, like, why is her head shaved? You know, and they don't even. <laughs> I think that's yeah. when he said, "Is she Russian?" Like, yeah. that's kind of stereotyping. I don't think you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> what makes me laugh and kind of question and scratch my head is that they just let these people into their house to basically explore and examine everything. Like, what did they say that would allow these two people to let them in? And you get these, you know, panning shots of government agents looking through things rifling through papers yeah. there's a shot going into the kitchen where mom is kind of nervous and by the way i think there's a jello mold on the counter in the background so <laughs> uh, i think those were a thing back then but it's just so weird to see this and then we get brenner who comes in and as we said before this calm cool collected person and adam i almost believed him if yeah. i didn't know what i've known so far i would probably you know follow along with her he goes uh we want to help him being michael we will help him but in order to do that you have to trust me do you trust me and then she goes she kind of nods a little bit yeah. like don't trust him he's, he's yeah. not good he's yeah. nice but he's not good i just <laughs> right. it's just oh my gosh <laughs> no and it's telling that that other woman who first was the social worker and and then whatever else she was i forget uh she wasn't getting anywhere with them. Like they were basically pissed off, right. And annoyed and, and upset with about the situation. Like, what are you guys doing? And Brenner just kind of diffuses that entire situation with a few words. Essentially, he's able to kind of calm the situation down and yeah, he does a, an excellent job of, uh, and he speaks to them in a very similar way that he speaks to 11. If you, if you yeah. think about it, sort of, yeah. he's good at just sort of, taking the situation and looking at it and breaking it down mm -hmm. and making sure everyone just does what they have to do. He asks where he thinks, I think he asked mom or, or dad, I think it pans in on mom, but he asks mm -hmm. both of them, you know, where do you think your son might be? And that leads us to the junkyard. Um, Lucas is doing what Lucas does best, which he provides this great little dirt map of the area. And this is where we get a lot of exposition of things that he's seen where there's, it's a government facility. <laughs> He says, it's the Department of Energy. And Dustin's like, what does that mean? What does energy mean? <laughs> Mike goes, it means the government. Because <laughs> my <laughs> yeah. dad knows. He's told me. And it's just very much this emphasis on conspiracy theories. Like it's deep diving into this, double downing on, doubling down, not double downing, doubling down <laughs> on this idea of all these different ideas that flow when it comes to conspiracy theories. Then we get choppers. This was a surprise to me. I'm like, <laughs> we've gone from power and electric vans to choppers <laughs> and of course then it makes them run 
into the bus. I love the fact that they hide the bikes. That's kind of cool. I wouldn't have thought of that, that they hide the yeah. bikes under the bus before they get in. So again, these, these kids are very uh, intuitive. They're very, very much, <laughs> they're smart kids. And yeah. um, you know, I would love to hang out with them because I would be like, I don't know what to do. Help me, Mike, help me, Dustin, help me, Lucas. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we move back to the police station. And this is where Jonathan and Nancy, they provide that photo to Hopper of, um, is it Barb or is it the, I think it's the monster. That's who it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the shot of Barb who was sitting, when she was sitting next to the pool, but in right. the, on the right hand side, you see the sort of outline of, of the Demogorgon behind her. And so that's the first time that they essentially let on that they have some clue as to what might be going on here. Yeah. And of course the police station is an interesting place to get this information because it's definitely a place of skepticism. I think it's yeah. like, this is where skepticism sort of gets fleshed out. There's this quiet moment with Joyce and Jonathan, where she reminds him that he's not alone. And she says out there in the world, I, I like that. She doesn't say you're not alone in this, but she lets him know that this is a bigger thing that as she alluded to, I think in the first episode of the second episode, after Will went missing. She apologized for neglecting him. And, right. and I thought this was a great little reinforcement that she genuinely does care about him. And I noticed this, Adam, that her empathy is really on display in this episode with him and with Elle later on, as we'll talk about. But I thought that this moment was a nice little touch point for her to reinforce to him, look, I love you. Yeah. And I know that you're going through a lot. I'm going through a lot, but we can actually work through this together and and know that you're not by yourself, that I am with you in whatever way I can be. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, it's a great moment. She's clearly a good mom as much as she is a single mom and a hard working mom who's maybe not around as much as she would like to be. She has great maternal instincts and as you mentioned we'll we'll see those really come out later with l but this is a, a nice moment and uh, and we also see another mom in this scene we see troy's mom at the station <laughs> troy who is the bully who gets his arm broken in the yes. previous episode yeah that's another funny moment especially with the with the uh not the deputy the other the officer he 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 clarifies that he's not a deputy he's just an officer <laughs> they have a He's giving her so much crap, Adam. Yeah, it's like, I know. It's just like, she gets so frustrated. She is a soccer mom. This is what this is what I see when I'm refing yeah. soccer games or when I'm sitting next to other parents is just how hysterical they get uh, with bad calls that may or may not be bad calls. It's just this kind of some somewhat justified, yes, her son has his arm broken and she's trying to get to the bottom of it. The way he describes L is both informative and hilarious because Hopper says, you know, he says, who is she with? And and he says, she's with a bunch of losers. <laughs> and, but he describes her as someone who has powers, who makes people fly and piss themselves. <laughs> like, yeah. if that's not a comic book superhero, I don't know what is. I mean, yeah. it's just... <laughs> and it's kind of surprising that Troy's mom believes this, like that. And, and clearly she has no idea that her son is a bully and a jerk and a horrible human being, but <laughs> she's there defending <laughs> her son who got his arm broken. But yeah, you're right. This, this is really, this is some comical relief here, but it's also an important moment where Hopper finds out that the person that did this had a shaved head and a girl who was with those boys, right? Those other, those non-athletic boys as they <laughs> principal said 
Um, so yeah, so this is a key moment where Hopper puts more pieces together and, and realizes that this girl might have some powers as well. It definitely gives a lot more exposition mm-hmm. and it pushes us over to, I paused the episode because I wanted to catch the title of this convenience store and it was called the Fairmart, F-A-I-R-M-A-R-T. And obviously I don't think that alludes to like a state fair, but I'm thinking, is there an unfair mart? Like, is this a way to say, look, if you go over to this store, you're going to get, you know, I got to pay like two fifty for Tylenol as opposed to the buck 25 that Steve got from his buddy here. This, uh, this scene shows us how wrecked Steve's face was. I didn't realize how bad he got it, especially compared to Jonathan. Yeah. But that was reinforced at the end of this conversation between him and his, I guess, ex-buddies now, where they say, you know, you couldn't beat up Jonathan. Well, what makes you think you can beat me up? And then, of course, he takes off. But right. I, I, I love this, not because Steve's face was wrecked, but because, oh, my gosh, I can love Steve again. You know, Steve... <laughs> Steve has a heart, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, this, the, uh, the tin man who gets his heart. It's great. And there's a line that he says that really kind of solidifies it for me. He says, Nancy's not miserable like you. She actually cares about other people. Yeah. And, and honestly, Adam, I despise these two. I hope the Demogorgon eats them. I mean, I really do. I hope yeah. they get their comeuppance. And I know that, you know, you've probably seen more than I have, obviously. So don't have to tell me anything, but that's just my wish list on my, you know, that's one of my Christmas wishes this year is that these two get eaten by the Demogorgon. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're not nice people. And I, and I said this in previous episodes, I think Steve got kind of caught up in their shenanigans to a certain extent. And I don't think he would have necessarily done some of the things that he did if he wasn't friends with them or if he wasn't hanging around with them. I think they were a bad influence and, and he was somewhat led astray. And hopefully, you know, this is a breakup for him and his uh, degenerate buddies and we won't see them anymore. <laughs> no, I hope we see them again, just in the Demogorgon's mouth. I, there you I just, go. There you go. And they probably taste really good in the upside down because they're bad in the regular world, there you go. as we've alluded to. So, and, and I will say this just to skip ahead. Uh, I think Steve, his kind of redemption, his exclamation pointed when he goes to the movie theater and he says, I want to help clean up the uh, graffiti that he helped put up there. And I thought that was kind of cool. So a nice little moment with him. And there are several of these little pockets I think we've talked about before where you have a show that has these quick scenes that don't necessarily have a lot of dialogue there's not a lot of stuff going on but they're enough to kind of push the story forward yeah uh, finish off a person's mini arc or mini plot and i thought this was one of those yeah and it is interesting in that scene that he doesn't actually admit to i think the theater owner or manager that that's he true caused it he just says i think he says i just want to help and so i think he it's his way of saying i had something to do with it and i want to fix it but doesn't actually say he did it. And maybe he did. Maybe it was one of his buddies that actually did the graffiti. I'm not, I don't think we're given any information to know one way or the other, but he was clearly a part of it and he wants to correct that mistake. So the, the, the show then kind of pushes us forward to both Mike's house and Will's house. There's the government taking everything. Why do they always take everything like blankets? <laughs> I think I saw a D and D game. And again, there was a little, little steady push on that. Like, I think the camera pushed in a little bit on, okay, why are you taking Dungeons and Dragons? Maybe they know something you don't or something like that. Maybe. And I, if you noticed earlier when you mentioned that they were kind of rifling through all their belongings in the basement, one of the agents was kind of looking at the Dungeons and Dragons 
manual on the table kind of reading it so and oh. i was thinking interesting either he's like really into this he's like well this is cool stuff i like it or maybe he's seeing a connection that this might be where the kids are coming from or this True. is their sort of reference that they're using for for whatever might be happening around them and uh yeah it's it was interesting and we didn't mention but brenner does find i think it was brenner 11's is it, it the the wig and uh, the dress, or I the believe. The dress. I know dress, he finds the dress. Yeah. as a fabric of some kind. I don't know if he finds yeah. the wig. The, oh, is the mom finds some of the hair that yeah. might have fallen out of the wig and wonders what that's all about. So, yeah, yeah there there's some clues that they found in the basement that just reinforce the fact that clearly Eleven had been in that basement for mm-hmm. some time. Yeah. There's also a, a funny line at Mike's house uh, spoken by what I am calling idiot dad and that's okay. this is our government they're on our side everything oh, yeah. that's yeah. just completely like great line very just he's perfect, just happy man. to accept and believe whatever he's told <laughs> get you back know, to your recliner dude you're just yeah. you're... does his job comes home watches the game you know he just he's got nothing else going on in that brain of his <laughs> i think it's at this point that we move over to to will's house uh, the buyer's house which has now become like oh my gosh it's a it's a creepy house now with all the it's, empty lights and things like that holes in the walls yeah it's yeah. just it's in shambles yeah it's already not a, a great property it's not anything even in the very first episode so yeah it's, i mean it literally looks state. like the elm street house it, it yeah. just it just abandoned and like not lived in in years it seems like and this is where jonathan takes joyce and hopper and nancy to get the walkie where they are then trying to contact this trio And then it leads us back to the abandoned bus where that kind of audio carries over. And I thought the same thing that Mike did, that what if it's a trick? And of course, Dustin has one of those classic lines. He says, it's like Lando Calrissian, don't answer. Like a great Star Wars (laughs) reference. And uh, yeah, I can't disagree because in this kind of world that we're living in where there's government agents floating around and they're tapping phones and things like that. Sure. I mean, what if they've got these people? tied up and they're making them say these things. So I would definitely believe or not believe that if I hear my sister or I hear Hopper, maybe they've got them. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's to carry on from that sort of Lando analogy from Empire Strikes Back. At one point, Dustin says, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this. And I couldn't help but notice that that's very similar to Han Solo's line where he says i got a bad feeling about this in also in empire Mm -hmm. right so i i think there was a little a little intention there even if it's not like the exact quote from han solo and they have that conversation that they eventually answer on the walkie and they hear nancy and hopper and joyce and later on back at the abandoned bus there is this moment that absolutely cracked me up adam when lucas mentions nancy possibly setting them up mike makes this face like really dude like the he didn't even say anything but the expression on his face is like really my sister you're you're really yeah. thinking this and i couldn't tell if he was insulted or if he thought no way nancy would do that there's no way right <laughs> but it was great it was so good and those are the subtle things that you can pick up on especially after more than one viewing you'll notice you know that you know all the characters are totally into their character they they are full fleshed out people in this in this universe in this world that they've created and then you see the g-men coming up and i don't care what era you're living in i feel like g-men are always driving around in k-cars these like 1980s oldsmobiles or whatever it is but 
even in like 1990s or the early 2000s, we see they're driving these cars. Like, please upgrade, get a Subaru. These things are long lasting. So big. Need... I mean, they're so know. boxy and big. They are. Yeah, <laughs> they're the worst. And Dustin, of course, is still stuck on the whole Lando theory. <laughs> He's just right. let it go, dude. And then, of course, they get rescued by Hopper, which I thought was a great kind of strength moment. You mentioned that uh, David Harbour is a pretty big dude. I mean, he's yeah, not in real he's life. like six yeah. four in real life. Yeah. And I thought this was kind of a great, he didn't get into a fight, but he was able to just kind of knock these guys out with brute strength. And that shows off a little bit of his physical prowess that we don't see a lot. Right. Three agents, uh, three, I would assume, trained agents. I don't know if they're Department of Energy agents or what they are, but they clearly, and they, I also, I noticed this time they have tranquilizer guns, not actual guns in their hands. So clearly the intention was not to harm these children, but to bring them in, to put them to sleep, <laughs> get them uh, back to the lab and not harm anyone. So again, that makes that makes Hopper's ability to take out three trained government agents more realistic because if they weren't armed with real guns, he would have a better chance of, you know, catching them by surprise, knocking them out and obviously saving the kids, which I think, yeah, it was a, it was a great little, and you don't even see, you see him knock the first one out and then you just hear, uh, you hear like thuds and sounds around them. You, you, it's all from the kid's vantage point. And right. then you see that it's Hopper, which was a nice little, little surprise. Yeah. It makes me wonder, Adam, you've mentioned this a couple of times that I actually didn't notice this on either one of my viewings. There are no guns. There are no weapons. There are detainment devices like these tasers. Would it be correct to assume that they are going to neutralize just L or the kids? Are they going to take them all back to the lab? I mean, obviously they want L, but do you think, and this is, I mean, nothing that's going to drive a plot, but I wonder what's their end game with the kids that are not L? Are they going to take them all back to Hawkins lab and just kind of detain them? I would think so because you can't have witnesses. Yeah. If I was in charge, if I were Dr. Brenner or someone else in charge, I would detain them all and use whatever means at my disposal to erase their memories of what had happened or to threaten them to such the extent that they would never speak of Elle or what she had, she's capable of doing ever again. I think that's ultimately the goal. They don't want to have to kill all these people. That's going to open up a bigger can of worms, right, than they want to deal with. So they want to uh, get Elle back and deal with that gate down in the bottom of the of the basement of the lab. But I think their, their intention is not to harm any of the citizens. They could have killed so many people, whether it was the science teacher, whether it's you know Mike's parents. I mean, all there's so many opportunities, but they're clearly trying to act as though they're helping, right? That they're trying to yeah. detain a problem. It just, it makes me wonder if the, I don't remember the character's name, but oh my... yeah, in in the uh, yeah at, at the burger joint the yeah um... the dunner, whatever his name was I, I call him Toby from <laughs> This Is Us because that's how I know him. When they they kill him, I wonder if that was an exception to the rule. Like maybe yeah he I don't even remember. I have to go back and look, but I don't know if he was killed off screen or I think he was. But he's the only fatality that we've seen by these government agents, or really at all besides well what we see in the upside down. So I think the exception is to kill at last resort because they don't right. have that kind of press, but clearly right. they have the ability to cover it up because it makes it look like a suicide. But, uh, but yeah, I think I agree with you that that methodology to apprehend and detain more than um, 
kill is definitely a priority. Because they're dealing with citizens and not, you know, military or government, you know, uh, Russian spies or something like that. I think that they're that's their goal. And maybe in that very first situation, they knew that L was there. They thought, oh, we'll just we need to get her back right here and now. And we just have to take this guy out and we'll figure out a way to cover it up. Because they, they were hopeful that that would be it, right? And they didn't expect her to take down two agents in the in the kitchen and escape out the back door. They thought this this, this was it, right? So kill True, kill yeah. off um, whatever his name is. <laughs> whatever. It's it's cool. We can just call him Toby from This Is Us because he was only in here for half an episode. So it's all good. Yeah. But yeah, I think that was the exception. I think they yeah. felt that that was what was warranted or needed in that particular situation to get her back and then... Now it's like gotten too big. She has now exposed herself, L, that is, to too many people that they can't just go killing everyone and make them all look like attempted suicides. So they're going a different route at this point. <laughs> <laughs> make it sound like, yeah, we're going to go in a different direction. We're yeah. going to not kill people because that's a little bit too complicated. And it's a little messy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely a lot of work. <laughs> More so than I would want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, also, people die, and I don't want that either. Unless you're the jerk friends of Steve. <laughs> you clearly want them to be just, eaten. I'm going to say it enough times that it's going to happen, even if it's not part of the yeah. show. I'm going to will it to happen. <laughs> um, so we get back to the buyer house, and uh, this is where we connect the dots with um, all the parties. This is kind yeah. of where all the the groups converge. Uh, Mike is using the acrobat and the flea to explain this whole idea to the rest of the folks. So this is kind of cool because this is almost like a recap of the acrobat and the flea where (laughs) for, for, for everyone who wasn't there during that initial uh, explanation. Yeah. (laughs) And also for us as an audience, if we forgot how all this stuff worked, we get the, uh, the secondhand knowledge, which I thought was pretty good. Good job, Mike, for explaining as you do, you know, using the illustration. I was very impressed with that. (laughs) And it's right before that explanation, there's a great shot where they're all outside of the buyer's residence. And you really do see for the first time, I think, every main character in one wide angle shot, not obviously Brenner, but all of the main good guys, if you will, in quotes. You have Hopper and you have Joyce and you have uh, Jonathan and Nancy. You have all the kids. Really, everyone is there who has suspected or uncovered some aspect of this conspiracy of this mystery and they're all in one really great nicely composed shot and it's kind of like okay we got the gang's all here now we're ready now now they can form a plan it's exciting too because as much as we've enjoyed these little mini adventures with these pockets of people it's almost like they're combining forces like they're combining their strengths to be able to to come together and and that kind of starts with l trying to contact Will and Barb using the the walkie-talkie. And the photograph. And, and uh, the photograph, yeah. kind of like what she was doing. It, really, the first two things that, that we see how she uh, manifests her power, but she fails. Right. And so, but that leads to her going to the bathroom and she gets the idea. She sees the bathtub behind her and she brings that to the group to say, hey, she doesn't say this. This is me paraphrasing her thoughts, but she gets the idea of the bathtub that high, uh what's it called sensory, sensory deprivation yeah. tank thank you yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these all these scientific words I that know. i don't know so they have to build it they have to build the sensory deprivation tank and who else to help them out but our man mr yeah. clark 
<laughs> this was actually a fun scene, Adam, because oh, so much fun! I, 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 again, I love this guy, and I think I don't know the actor's name, but I think he's terrific in this role. I actually noticed that this is unrelated, but I saw him playing a teacher in another show recently. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Mr. Clark from Stranger Things, and he's playing a teacher. So yeah. Does he have the mustache? Does he have the mustache? He, he looked just like him. Yeah, he had a mustache, That's everything. Great. Yeah, same That's basic great. haircut. Yeah, just yeah. He's got, uh, I think, a lot of work ahead of him as high school teachers. Uh, <laughs> he does a good job. <laughs> I mean, great getting your chops here on this show, right? He's on a date, which I thought was kind of cool. And yeah, he's at his the, house. Yeah, yeah, at his house, watching the thing on on VHS because I think she says, you know, do you want me to pause? So clearly right. he's rented a movie. Can you rent movies in 83? Is that, is that something? Yeah, they, they had lots of, uh, they were starting to pop up all over. The kind of mom and pop video rental stores were were pretty widespread at that point. The big chains hadn't, like Blockbuster hadn't really formed yet, but they were, yeah, mom and pop rentals were everywhere by like 83, 84. They were huge and, uh, and, and they were very successful. But at the time, you know, to rent a movie like The Thing at the time was, it was for a small rental store, it was very expensive. You had to pay like almost a hundred dollars for a tape as the owner of the rental store. And you would have to rent a movie, you know, like 20 times to make your money back. And so it was, that's why you only had like one copy of each movie in, <laughs> in your rental store. Again, this is dating us because clearly people today probably have no recollection, but I used to love going to a store and going through the sci-fi section and be like, Oh, the thing, there it is. It's exciting when it was in when it was available. You can get it out, yeah. borrow it. That was always the thing: is walking into a a, a blockbuster or a, we had a premiere video, and you would see the case, and then you would hope you would hope that the plastic case with the tape is right. behind it. Not the bo- empty. Box. If some jerk didn't yeah. switch them, like, oh, dude, I get to watch, you know, the last uh, Starfighter, and you turn around, it's like, oh, it's Trolls Two. Dead gummit, you stupid. What are you doing? Yeah, and yeah. you you couldn't. Bl- I mean, who would you blame? You blame a patron for. Switching on you, or would you blame Blockbuster employees for being stupid? So right, at that exactly. point, your Friday was ruined because like, I'm not watching Trolls 2. And then you have to pick out, you know, <laughs> right. some movie that you've seen 40 times because nobody else watches it. But right. Maybe they got the movie at the, uh, what was it, the Fairmart? Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. That was also the case. Yeah, there were a lot of places where you would just have a little video rental section within a supermarket or um, local pharmacy or something so yeah at different times that's how you had to get your entertainment and now uh it's all different uh just a quick note benny hammond was the uh, that's the it benny. name i knew it was similar to similar sounding to um the, step, the double the n stepfather yeah. lonnie benny yeah lonnie yeah. benny johnny johnny <laughs> so yeah benny now you can sleep well tonight knowing yeah. that uh, you know that now <laughs> what i think is funny is that uh, you know they call uh, Mr. Clark on a Saturday night. Yeah. On Saturday night. Yeah. And he goes to this whole diatribe with Mr. Clark about, Hey, I've got a science question. Mr. Clark's like, you know, clearly he's on a date, but he's like, yeah. just can wait until Monday. And he's right. You know, this is not something that's necessarily pressing. And then Dustin says, you always say we should never stop being curious to always open any curiosity door we find. <laughs> Why are you keeping this curiosity door locked? I think that was so, so funny. And clearly it worked because he's like, all right, all right, what do you need? (laughs) Yeah. And then the next, the next scene is that, that whole prep montage where he's writing stuff down and, um, and then we get a whole sequence of, I love montages. Uh, It's, it's no secret. I just love a good montage. And so we get Hopper with the de-icing salt 
and uh, there's a great moment with him and Jonathan. He says, you got to trust me on this. I'm going to find him. Uh, mm -hmm. He says that to Jonathan about Will. And then you see Dustin and Lucas uh, struggling with the kiddie pool in the gym. I, I, I'm kind of throwing out logic here because I'm asking myself, how did they get into the gym? How is this possible? I mean, maybe everybody's breaking locks like Nancy is, but I, I just said, whatever, I'm going to roll with it. I mean, you got a sheriff. Yeah, maybe the sheriff, maybe the chief of police has keys to the local high school just in case, you know, it's it's within the realm of possibility. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this almost feels like a catch up with characters that have not been connected with each other. Yeah. And uh, one great example is you got Mike with Nancy. And of course, it, it's great to see him surprised at how she's able to break into the maintenance shed. And I think this is in part because, you know, she has experienced the Demogorgon. She's kind of grown up a little bit. She's not used a bat, but she knows how to swing something now. And I think yeah. it's great. His facial expression is good. Oh, I love how he's like, whoa. And he's just like, he's kind of, what I see in his eyes in that moment is, my sister's kind of a badass, you know, and I think she is now. And she wasn't maybe a week earlier, right? Right. But she's gone through enough. Her best friend went missing and she's gone down this whole rabbit hole with Jonathan. So clearly she, as you said, has changed. She's grown up a little bit. She's sort of found her her power. And I think Mike's kind of like a little impressed with his sister now. It's, it's, this isn't the same sister he he knew before, I feel like. And yeah. And, there's a little bit of a bonding moment in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she even says from now on, no more secrets. We tell yeah. each other everything. Uh, and then there's that great beat where they then proceed to lie to each other about liking their respective partners. She, he says, so are you with Jonathan now? And he's just like, no, it's not like that. And clearly <laughs> it is because we saw them in the police station and then she says, so do you like Ellie? He's like, oh, gross. And the facial expression she gives are like, yeah, I, I don't think you're telling the truth there. Well, and I mean, I yeah, but in, in all fairness, I kind of think that both of them may not even realize if they do like Jonathan and Eleven, you know, respectively. It's possible that they're both sort of in that phase where they're kind of unsure what they're feeling. And sure. maybe they don't, they have they can't even verbalize what they're feeling yet. They don't even, especially Mike, I think a first love at age 12, what, what are these weird feelings I'm having for this, for this girl, right? I'm conflicted. I don't know what I'm feeling. So of course he's going to say, no, of course not. But maybe he's then thinking, well, do I like her? You know? So I, I just, I defend their responses there a little bit because I think <laughs> it's not at that age for both of them. They're young sure. enough that feelings like this are confusing, right? Mm -hmm. These types of, emotional and or love feelings are not something that I think either of them have had a lot of experience with. Yeah. I would agree that both of these relationships were built out of trauma. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, the feelings may not be completely genuine, uh, but I think that's a great kind of duplicity there because you're right. They don't have a complete understanding or complete confidence in how they feel about their respective partners. But I think it's fitting that the writers decided to, yeah. have those two lines right after she says we tell each other everything no more secrets because clearly right. there is something there but but i agree with you i think it's still kind of not fleshed out in that regard. And, and just not and hard to uh hard for either of them to to put into words what they, they clearly care about those individuals they clearly right i i there's no question but like them in quotes what does that mean right and <laughs> like like do you yeah, like like me <laughs> exactly or as the kids say today are they talking to each other 
Is that what that is? I don't know. Yeah, that that's detail. the wow. thing. I don't. I don't get it. It's what apparently what teenagers say now is that they're talking to each other in quotes, and that means that they're having a kind of relationship, but it's not like steady. That's because most of the time they text. I guess that's what. It yeah, is. maybe that's what it is because they're because because their communication is going is happening through uh, like a written electronic medium for the most part whether it's social media or email or text maybe that's why talking is the is the term that's is used now that but back in 1983 <laughs> it was the telephone or in person or bonding in the upside down <laughs> anyway but yeah it's it's a good scene it's it's a really nice moment and again like you said before this we only got them together probably for a few moments at, around the dinner table yeah kind of annoying one another <laughs> <laughs> as they are prone to do as brother and sister. Yeah. Joyce and Elle also have a really great moment. She's making this kind of makeshift blackout goggles from a set of science goggles with duct tape. I thought that was kind right. of cool. And she tells Elle she's a very brave girl. She's very grateful at how she's helped Will and uh, being able to try to contact him. And this is this is really cool because, yes, we've joked on the show about how Joyce has sort of gone around the bend and she's kind of nuts, but now everybody else is nuts with her. So she's not as nuts. Yeah. So this dialogue about her connection with Will and how Elle has been a conduit for staying connected. I just, I love that. I love seeing her mom instinct come out with Elle. She doesn't see her as a weird person. She doesn't see her as like a means to an end. She genuinely has that empathy that. I think Elle misses that she doesn't have with the mom. I mean, the only parental figure, the only caring figure that she's had is with Brenner, you know, Papa. While we can agree that he has a soft touch with her to an extent, I mean, he's not grabbing her, yelling at her. He's very soft-spoken. There is a maternal instinct that she's missing, a maternal influence that she's missing that I think Joyce really sort of starts to get you know, with her. And so watching how, I think in this scene, she says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Do you trust me? And she says, I do. And I I just think that's really cool because I mean, Elle's got every reason not to trust people. And so she's only met Joyce once. And I think that there's something about Joyce that she connects with that really kind of shows itself here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Joyce, you know, she's been through so much with her own son missing, but she also can see at the same time that this poor girl with a shaved head must have been dealing with something far worse for far longer. And yet here she is still trying to help me find my boy. Right. And so I think there's a genuine concern for her from Joyce. And and if we're led to believe that this is indeed Terry Ives' daughter, Jane Ives, if that's true, which we talked about in the previous episode, then this is a girl who is, like you said, never met her mother, doesn't even know that she's alive. So her only fatherly figure is Brenner. And so, yeah, I think she's for the first time perhaps experiencing sort of a maternal figure, someone here to to help her, to care for her, to tell her it's going to be okay. Because in Mike's house, clearly they kept her away from the mom. They were, you know, the boys were always like, no, you can't interact with any of the adults, right? But here we have an adult that actually is there to, to help her and protect her. And and Hopper, yeah. too, to a, to a lesser extent, he clearly is on her side. And so she, right. she now finally has some adults <laughs> looking out for her, where mm-hmm. it's all been essentially kids her own age or a little older up until this point. 
So then we get to the building of the deprivation tank. And I kind of question the accuracy, (laughs) the science behind this. I get that it's homemade, makeshift. But when it comes to like how much salt's in the water and the water temperature and everything, I can buy the egg. I'm going to go off the assumption that Mr. Clark said, if an egg can float, you've got enough salt in the water to be able to do this. But I love the creation of it. I love the fact that all the kids are like, hotter, colder, perfect. And I'm like, yeah, are you? Nah, I don't know about that. But that's a nitpick for me, something that I have a little bit of I mean, from what I understand of a tank like this, it has to the salt water has to mimic the blood temperature in your body because what happens then is you're basically floating in the water and you don't feel your body because it's right. the same exact temperature. So yeah. it essentially it's like you lose all sensory of uh, touch feelings of your limbs, right? So it's just like your consciousness floating. And then if you black mm-hmm. out your eyes, you're not seeing anything. And in a real tank, you wouldn't hear anything either. But clearly mm-hmm. in this case, they wanted Joyce to be able to speak to her to kind of bring her back or to keep her grounded if, if yeah. necessary. So I think it's scientifically sound as far as I'm aware, but I don't know specifically if I think they needed 1500 pounds of salt, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot for maybe a small kitty tank. But again, (laughs) I I, I don't know the exact scientific specifics here, but it in theory makes sense that what they're trying to do is create an environment where her body will feel like it's just, you know, it's just like you're floating and you don't even notice that your limbs are are attached to your own body because you're so desensitized to your surroundings. Yeah. And I didn't have an issue with it by any means. I just thought, <laughs> yeah. you know, with, with something that needs to get to a specific temperature, you know, you, I get it. You have homemade stuff. It's Mr. Wizard's world doing, doing this. And so I'm willing to suspend my disbelief saying that it's not completely scientifically hundred percent. I think what I like about it is the fact that these guys just find stuff from around town, you know, the kiddie pool yeah. and and the salt from the the maintenance shed and all those different things. And so it's a means to an end. And, yeah. And it's uh, not, maybe it's not exactly perfect, but it's enough for Elle to amplify her ability and not, you know, to, to do what she needs to do. Obviously a real tank, like in the lab is the ideal situation. And this is where I wanted to ask a question. So early on in the season, we mentioned the idea of this electricity and you mentioned it when Nancy goes into the upside down, her flashlight flickers. We see the the lights flicker when Ella's trying to channel Barb and Will at the buyer's house. And then it flickers again when she goes into the deprivation tank. And I'm still a little curious about what that means. And if there's been an answer up to this point, maybe you can enlighten me a little bit, but I don't know what the electricity means. And does it mean like that she's channeling electricity in order to make her stronger so that she can project things because I feel like that's the water that does that not not the electricity yeah. how does I just I don't know how the electricity fits in we may not have an answer for that yet that, that's yeah, I don't fine. know if we've been given an actual explanation I think it's sort of implied maybe that it's just sort of a sign of interference perhaps or of that something's about to happen or that almost like static on a you know, a radio channel that you get, it's like crackles. So the electricity is like crackling when, when there's like about to be a crossover of some kind, some kind yeah, of yeah. connection is being made. And so that triggers sort of electrical charges or surges within the local surrounding of the event. That's, I think, all we're kind of led to believe. I don't think anything beyond that has been spelled out. 
specifically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not missing something. No, no, I don't think you're missing anything. Just, <laughs> okay. just that it's some kind of uh, a sign that a crossover or a connection or something is is about to take place or is taking place. That this is okay. This is you know it's being triggered. So that's, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. When I think about Barb being taken, when I think about Nancy going into the upside down, it's, yeah, yeah, it's almost like um, lightning before thunder, that kind of thing. Right, right. That's some kind of precursor to an event occurring. And if you remember in the very first episode, there were all those, they talked about on the TV, all the power outages and, and surges of electricity. So clearly that was the very initial event of the gate, perhaps forming or opening, whatever you want to call it. And that was triggering a lot of, town-wide electrical problems True. so okay that's that's i think all we can sort of ascertain based on what we've been given okay well that that event is led into l in the tank and her mission if she chooses to accept it which she does is <laughs> to go in there and find will and find barb unfortunately we find barb and she is gone 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 <laughs> I am sad. I think we should take yeah. a, a have a moment of silence for Barb because what we found was that she has this entrail growing out of her mouth, and that's not okay with me. I don't like that. <laughs> but I think we've confirmed that she is now dead. So yeah, and unfortunately, we don't get a lot with her parents. We don't see anything. Like everyone's worried about Will Byers missing, but no one cares that Barb went missing. Why don't you care about Barb, guys? Why? What's Hawkins thinking? Well, this goes back to that, that conversation. You know, why, why did they create a fake Will Byers body? Why didn't they create a fake Barb one? I think it was the pants, honestly. I think it goes back to the pants. That's why they don't care about her. But in any case, I'm giving yeah. her a hard time. I, I, think it, you know, it's, I think it was bittersweet because you don't know. I think even after this, I still want to think that she's alive. But that's clearly her. Like, I actually paused it as gross as it was, I paused to make sure, is that just some other person? No, it's Barb. I mean, she is, that's her. It's not, uh, not some synthetic cotton filled body because that does not exist in the upside down. And we, and as we talked about previously, we weren't sure maybe she was just like an aliens taken back to a, a hive or something where she was tied up or something, or, you know, like a spider's web, like put in a web, you know, no, she was clearly killed or eaten or something. Something happened at the hands of the Demogorgon. And now we have confirmation, but thankfully L does find castle buyers in the upside down and finds poor little will asleep and wet and cold and looks like barely hanging on. Yeah. I I like this production set. I like this set inside this. It's not the upside down. Like she's not in the upside. She's in, she's in her world and she's. It's like a medium between our world and the upside down, but she yeah. it's like, she can see a little section mm-hmm. of the upside down. Yes. That she's connecting with, but it's sort of materialized within her in her middle space <laughs> yeah. that she creates with her mind. It, it's a pocket is what it is yeah. because she yeah. sees Barb in this, whatever it is that she's all bangled up, mangled up in. And then she sees castle buyers, which I thought was really cool. And I think it's neat that even in the upside down, Will can hide in, yeah. in his castle that it's familiar to him. And, and this is one of those great moments where Joyce is able to communicate through L that it's going to be okay. And, and this is a great payoff for her that she is actually able to communicate with Will again, 
And I don't know that he says anything else. I think he just, he's just bundled up and he's cold. And then that moves back to reality where Elle is back in the world of where we are. And this is where Joyce kind of gets her exclamation point of maternal instinct. She holds her and she says, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Again, we don't see that with Brenner. Right. Um, Of course, we don't see the aftermath of either of those tank sequences from the flashbacks either. Right. So we don't know for sure either way. But the impression, I think, is that Joyce is giving Elle something that she probably has never had before from right. a, from an adult right yeah that type of love and tenderness mm-hmm. and caring yeah and so the episode starts to finish up with uh, a couple of different conversations uh, nancy's talking to jo- nancy nancy's talking mm-hmm. to jonathan about quote finishing what we started right they then head over to the police station and they steal their equipment their monster hunting gear yeah their monster hunting gear and i gotta tell you that the security there is terrible the fact that they could get into the police station steal that heavy loud equipment without even triggering the security <laughs> well, guard. But again, adults are stupid in this series. I've just realized it's, that. It's 1983 and <laughs> it's a small town. You've got like three cops, you know, and probably only one on duty at night. And he's just like listening to the radio or something. He's not paying attention. So again, growing up in a small town, I can tell you that it's not that far removed from reality that there nothing much happens in small towns. So you're not on, you're not expecting people to break into your police station and steal something. So it just, yeah, it's, it's possible, but it's also funny. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I like talking about this with you because you justify it in a way that I can go, I can almost believe that. Yeah. You can almost believe it. You can (laughs) suspend your disbelief and accept it. Uh, But less believable was that, Hopper and Joyce thought that they could break back into the Hawkins lab when (laughs) they are well aware of everything going on now. You know, when he first broke in, this was prior to everything kind of blowing up. And now they're aware that they had a breach previously with him coming in and he's on to them now. They know that he's on to them. And so the fact that they thought they could break in and not get caught was ridiculous and yes. he even says like I, I, it worked once before and that's exactly why it won't work this time and of exactly. course they're surrounded by <laughs> you know like 50 armed and here we do have actual armed agents and military personnel just surrounding them so they're they're in a bit of a pickle yeah and they clearly are are going to be detained <laughs> at the end of this episode i thought that they had mentioned they were going to go to castle buyers though right was that was that not in the plan where that's where, because I think Hopper was asking where it was. Right. I think that's where the kids were going to go next. I think they were sort of like, so we, here we have them all together and they all went together to the school to do the deprivation tank. But at this point, now that they know that Will's alive and they only know that there's one, as far as they know, one gate or one way in, which is through the Hawkins lab. True, I think yeah. they decided that they're going to kind of divide and conquer at this point. And that Hopper and Joyce will go try to enter the gate because Hopper has seen it with his own eyes. Yeah. And clearly it's not terribly far. If this is truly an upside down version of their world, if they go in the gate through the lab, they'll have to exit the Hawkins lab in the upside down and then walk on foot to Castle Byers to, to gotcha. get him. Right. Gotcha. Uh, which is maybe a mile away. I and mean, they said it at one point that they think everything's within like a, a one mile radius. So it makes sense. But yeah, okay. I think the kids were going to go back to, I think that was the plan, go back to the buyer's 
house as part of the plan, I believe. Yeah. So that's kind of where we leave off, except for the very final. The unfair <laughs> shot is what I'm called. Scare. The unfair shot. Yeah. Where you have the upside down castle buyers is our last moment. You got Will who kind of wakes up. He looks around. And then you have that crazy jump scare of whatever's coming at the camera. And then the credits roll. And I'm like, why am I not watching the second episode? Because I'm dedicated to this <laughs> show and the integrity of this show. So there we are. I have no answers at this point about what was going on. I'm ready for the season finale. Well, it's probably the Demogorgon, but will Will die? I don't know because <laughs> he survived this long. Right. So I would hope that they wouldn't do that to us as viewers. Or is it something else? Like you said, could there be something else in this upside down world that we haven't yeah. yet seen? But I think we are going to try and watch this final episode <laughs> right now yes and come back to record at a, a slightly later date our thoughts on it but we're not a later time because it's yeah. already late for both it's, of us exactly. <laughs> we will be Actual refreshed when later we talk date. about it yeah yes we may re-watch it one more time prior to that but we're excited to to get right into the finale and and see how this all ties up absolutely so with that you know what's coming up next but we don't have to tell you and so with that, we are actually going to say thank you for joining us for this conversation. As always, I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.